Well, you know, it's not fair to the speaker to finish with a hymn like that. I can see it is the moving of the Spirit. <laughs> when clothed in his brightness transported, I rise to meet him in clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, a shout with the millions on high. We're going to speak about resurrection tonight. I call this a worthy pursuit. And what more worthy pursuit could there be than the right resurrection? So we're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians 15. But before we go there, I want to spend some time in one of the minor prophets. I saw some things here that I hadn't seen before. And it might seem kind of non sequitur given what the topic's about. But I want to go to Habakkuk. For in there, I, I see this macro view of mankind and his relationship to God. But I see some strong reasons that we would want to pursue the right resurrection. And I also see some instruction, some wisdom there on what might prevent us from making the right decision even when we know it's the one we should make. Starting in uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, I'll read a few verses. Now Habakkuk is unique among the prophets. Although many prophets saw things they didn't like, Habakkuk saw things he didn't understand and he didn't like and he challenged God. Verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Kind of sounds like today's justice system, doesn't it? Will true justice prevail? Appointedly, are there, are there consequences for anybody's actions? Do our choices matter? And of course, we know the answer is yes. You know, we make choices moment by moment, whether we think about it or not. We weigh what are the benefits going to be versus the cost, from the most minor things in our life to the very important ones. I've already pointed out a worthy pursuit. We might ask it this way, is what I'm pursuing worth catching? Or what might I lose? You know, if you're driving, you're making a moment of my moment, right? Maybe mundane things like which radio station to listen to, but what turn to make? What's the person in front of me doing? On a daily basis, boy, if you're well off, it might be, am I going to work today or am I going to pursue leisure? You know, leisure, that's just a, a euphemism for what am I going to waste my time on? <laughs> the sports fanatics? We got any sports fanatics amongst us? How can you tell a, uh, a football fanatic? Maybe a painted face and a painted belly, no shirt and a freezing stadium. That's somebody who's dedicated to what they're pursuing. A fisherman, maybe you see a, a huge fish plastered on the front of his t-shirt. How about a skydiver? How do you tell who a skydiver is? Uh, trust me, you don't, you don't need to to tell. If they're a skydiver, they're going to tell you. Um, you know, if we move on to some of the more important decisions, lifetimes one, we, we choose a spouse, or a career, or maybe a house to buy. Those are pretty important. I think we'd all agree. 
but compared to eternal choices, they just pale in comparison. Last time I checked, eternity's quite a long time. We, we make these decisions because we want life, or, or maybe more descriptively, fullness of life. We want favorable outcomes because we want good things and good experiences. Conversely, I mean, we, we, we don't want the bad experiences or bad. It's not rocket science, is it? We try to come up with the best choice based on what the reward's going to be. Oftentimes, we are pursuing pleasure because we mistakenly believe that therein we're going to find lasting happiness. And with that happiness, peace. But you know that line of thought is very short on truth. Happiness is really only a sense of satisfaction based on fleeting circumstances. Peace. Now peace, that's a result of a confident knowledge of well-being. That's a worthy goal. Isn't anything necessarily inherently evil about happiness and fleeting circumstances as long as they don't take our eyes off the prize? or cause us to miss some danger that's crept up in our life. We have faith that our choices are going to be good ones. And some people would say, I, I, don't, I don't believe in faith. <laughs> that's a foolish thought. Those people have faith that their paycheck's going to be deposited, or that that bottle of aspirin they bought at the pharmacy is maybe because they made some bad choices, but that aspirin that's in that bottle is really aspirin and not hemlock. And if you're so inclined, you have faith your parachute's going to open. Uh, ah, you might correctly say, sometimes those things don't work out the way you planned. And that's true, and that's why it's important to weigh carefully where we put our, our trust in what we place our faith. We're looking for those rewards. If it's a spouse we're choosing, we, we want fulfillment, companionship, and security, and uh, maybe a servant, too. We go to a job, we're going to invest the sweat of our brow our labor, um, hoping to get remuneration, a, a paycheck, so we can live life. Of course, we might then turn around and go to the football stadium and trade some of that sweat uh, for a good game. Uh, that's another euphemism. It's where we go to watch our thugs beat up their thugs. And again, I'm not saying there's anything inherently evil with that, but at what cost? You know, for us skydivers, um, I'm not sure what we're after. I suppose a momentary thrill or maybe a lasting satisfaction of prevailing in an in a, in a arena of, of danger. And if that's not enough, some of us ride our motorcycles to the drop zone. Uh, obviously, some of us are, are making very foolish choices. But how about yours? How about your pursuits? How wise are they, especially long term? How about eternally long? You know, I, I'm trying to set the stage, obviously, uh, for this argument I'm going to deliver on why we ought to pursue a righteous resurrection. I'm going to talk about some of the benefits of it. But we ought to weigh what the costs and what the benefits are. And not just in what we're going to gain, but what we stand to lose. You know, the Bible promises resurrection. And it's interesting because in that resurrection, that's the source of peace. You know, as we defined it, confidence in a doubtless promise of resulting well-being. And in this case, it's one which is forever. 
And why? Why would that peace be there? Because of three fascinating truths. Number one, we know there's a future resurrection because number two, there was a past resurrection. And number three, that past resurrection gives us life here in the present and in the future. In that past resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is tied to our hope, our promise of a future resurrection, which is glorious in nature. The rewards are beyond our ability to comprehend. So having said that, let's go to the chapter in the Bible uh, that deals with resurrection, that of Christ and that of those who are Christ's at his coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around a bit. But we'll start with verse 1. Paul speaking here says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Now Paul's making clear the importance of this message, by which you are saved. In verse 3, this very familiar passage here, 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, it's paralleled in Romans 4.25, and it kind of gives some of the reasoning for it. He was delivered up because of our transgressions, but he was resurrected because of our justification. Our sin put him on the cross. And for us to be justified, he was resurrected. And we have our promise of resurrection through Christ. Jumping down to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to, God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. You know, our, our physical death, well, actually all death, is tied to the sin of Adam. When I talk about this passage with people, they say, you're telling me I'm tagged with sin because of Adam, because of what happened in the garden? Uh, yeah, that's, that's what Scripture says. That's unfair. Uh, well, maybe it is, but that's the truth. We can't escape it. You know, we go into the ground because of our sin. Now in Christ, we can have new life. Christ came out of the ground defeating death, and he gives us life. So this isn't a sad ending. If we jump down to verse 35, Paul will start to affirm the physical nature of our resurrection. He asks a rhetorical question, then answers it. And he, boy, he, he seems like he's, he gets kind of pointed here, but he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's, he's speaking in 
farming terms here. You plant a seed and it, it comes out. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. You know, the seed may not have the identical features of the plant that's going to sprout, but that plant is from the seed. You call it a resurrection. He's using it as an, as a, uh, an example there. But our physical resurrection is going to be imperishable. In verse 42, Paul says, So also is a resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And you know, many of the false cults will look at that and say, See, you're only raised as a spiritual body. But... Scripture is very clear, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it. But the very next verse, in the very next sentence, it's, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 49, it says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also bear the image of the heavenly. You know, we should be like Jesus in his resurrection body. Uh, John, in his, uh, his first epistle, in the third chapter of the second verse, says, When he is revealed to us in glory, then we will become like him and see him for who he is. We're going to be like Jesus, like his resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable, or does the perishable rather, inherit the imperishable. You see, our earthly corrupted bodies, they can't endure heaven. They can't endure the glory of God. I mean, that's what God said to Moses in Exodus 33, right? You can't look on me and live. These bodies aren't fit for dwelling in the presence of God. He continues, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus in, in, in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, the resurrection uh, and the rebirth is integral to our understanding of salvation and an eternal existence in the presence of the glory of God. People will say, well... Do I have to believe in the resurrection to be saved? By and large, I would say yes. I, I, you know, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, right? I suppose it's possible that somebody could have an understanding they're a sinner, that Christ died to pay for their sins, his blood was shed to pay for their sins, and they have a broken heart. 
they just don't have knowledge of the resurrection. I suppose that's possible, but that's a reach. But I'll tell you this, it is possible to believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and still end up in hell. If you read the account in Matthew 28 uh, of the soldiers, I mean, they felt the earthquake. They saw the angels. They witnessed the empty tomb, and yet they were still party to the cover-up. Knowledge is not enough. It's acting on the knowledge you have, being obedient to what the gospel tells us. Paul gives us a little bit of a picture of, of, of our heavenly bodies, how they're made or who makes them and where they are now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll just read a couple verses quick here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 2. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. In verse 5, he says, or part of 4, he says, we desire this, we desire to be further clothed. Why? So that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You know, Paul's telling us that this new body, this new housing, this new physical thing we're going to dwell in, it's in heaven and it's from heaven. Why? Because, well, we're going to be changed by God. He's the one making a new body for us, ready for dwelling in a new place, for living in heaven, for living in the presence of his glory. He's the one who knows what must be constructed to withstand the purity, the beauty of his glory. You know, God doesn't have a plan B. Those are the type of bodies, as I understand scripture, that Adam and Eve had. They lived in the garden, physical garden, they ate fruit. We, we, of course, wish they wouldn't have eaten the one fruit, but they ate, and they walked in the cool of the day with the Lord. They dwelt in the presence of God. Satan didn't defeat God's plan. It's set it back, and really what it's done is it's given God an opportunity to demonstrate to all the heavenly creatures the meaning of love and forgiveness. But that's going to be restored. Now, you know, intuitively, instinctively, we know heaven's a glorious place and we have a desire for it. And our resurrected body is what's going to prepare us to, to dwell there. I'll give you a list of uh, some of the changes we're going to go through. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, you know, we're going to have full possession of eternal life in verses 15 and 17. Jude 24 says we're going to be faultless, we'll be presented faultless before his uh, glorious presence. Uh, Colossians 1.22 says we'll be holy and blameless, we'll be free from guilt and shame. Romans 8, uh, 21 points out that we, along with all creation, are going to be free from um, the negative impact of sin and all the groaning and suffering. You know, Romans 8, 29 and 30, uh, to me, two of the most glorious verses in the Bible, especially if we had no verse other than Romans 8, verse 30, if that's the only one that spoke to eternal security, it wouldn't matter. Can't controvert this verse and what it says. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he foreknew, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, 
he also glorified. Justified and glorified. They're both in the aorist tense in the Greek. In a moment in time in the past, they were fully completed. It's a done deal. If you've ever been justified, if you've ever been saved, you've been glorified. This is a glorified body. It doesn't look like it because I'm not wearing the, the one that God still has for me in heaven. That's what the verse is telling us. Philippians 3.21 talks about Jesus. He's going to transform this lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. In Romans 8, again, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 18 says, you know, we're, we're going to have glory revealed to us and we're going to realize that all the sufferings in this world, no big deal. It was worth it. In Psalm 16.11 says, you know, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I've already talked about 1 John 3, verse 2. It says we're going to be like, like him. We're going to have a body like him. But I want to go to 1 John chapter 4, and verse 2, a part of verse 2 and a part of verse 3. Because, again, it speaks to the physical resurrection. Verse 2, in part, says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And then verse 3 states, again, in part, that Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. You know, those who deny that Christ came in the flesh or, or were that he was resurrected in the flesh, uh, they're of the spirit of Antichrist. You know, we know there's cults that, that teach that. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can kind of understand when a Greek scholar lays down an understanding. That's where I get justified and glorified in Romans 8, verse 30. A Greek scholar has said this about those portions of 1 John chapter 4. John is writing after the resurrection and is using perfect tense in Greek, which denotes a past action with continuing results into the present and continuing on into the future. He came in the flesh, rose in the flesh, and is still in the flesh. The same body that he was born and died with, he rose with. If one claims that Christ rose as a spirit creature and not physically, they are of the Antichrist spirit and are denying the third point of the gospel. Uh, remember 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Well, what's a resurrection going to be like for those who reject Christ? No one likes this part of the message. But, you know, the true test of any, any message, any study, is not whether you like it or is it pleasurable, does it satisfy people, does it avoid offense, does it make them feel good? No, the test is always, is it true? Uh, the pertinent questions would be, is hell real and is hell eternal? And you've you got to question what it says about human nature in that by far more people believe in, hell, in, in heaven than believe in hell. Many of the people who believe in heaven don't believe there's a hell. Uh, as I said, I, I know people don't like the idea, and I guess some of them who find it objectionable just wish it away. That's kind of odd. No, it's foolish. You know, the same book, the Bible that gives us heaven, also gives us hell. The Bible clearly teaches that hell is an eternal place. It's a place where the wicked and unbelieving are sent as a form of punishment. You know, we've all sinned against God, Romans 3.23, right? And the just punishment for sin is death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. 
Since all sin is ultimately against God, God is perfectly just, perfectly infinite, and he's eternal. The punishment for sin has to be infinite and eternal. Hell makes sense. Doesn't mean we have to like it, but that's what God tells us. Hell is described in numerous places in Scripture. Just quickly, Daniel says it's a place of shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus describes it in Matthew 3 as uh, unquenchable fire, as eternal fire in Matthew 25, uh, a place where the fire is not quenched in Mark 9, a place of torment and fire in Luke 16. Paul tells it's, a, it's everlasting destruction in, first, in 2 Thessalonians 1. In Revelation, we have uh, in, in chapter 14, it, you know, the smoke and uh, torment rises forever and ever. Uh, it's a lake of burning sulfur where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever in, in Revelation 20. The punishment of the wicked in hell is just as never-ending as the bliss of those who are forever in the presence of God in heaven is. Now, Jesus made that clear in Matthew 25. He said it's the everlasting place. You know, it's interesting if you think of the story of the rich man uh, in hell in Luke 16. He has all his senses. He's, in, he's suffering. He's asking for just a drop of water to be put on his tongue. He comes to realize he deserves to be there. Not only does he deserve to be there, but his five brothers deserve to be there. He can see, he can see, and he recognizes Lazarus. He recognizes Abraham. He wants someone to warn his brothers that they not come. Jesus gives us a clear picture, and that's just the, the abode until the great white throne. It's a real place, but thank goodness we can thank God to the praise of his glory that he's giving us a way to escape this judgment that we deserve. Now, how do we deserve it? Well, we're sinners. Now, there's a lot of uh, well-meaning ideas that people have on how to get into heaven, ways which uh, seem good. They, they even seem right. But you know, the Bible has something to say about human logic, that we shouldn't be taken captive by it. It also gives us warning that just because something seems right doesn't make it right. Twice in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 14 and chapter 16, we have the same verse. It says, there is a way which seems right unto man, but its end is the way of death. When we're told it twice, there's some great import there. Well, those that employ that line of thought, they say, I know who goes to heaven. Good people go to heaven. Um, well, according to the Bible, uh, good people cannot go to heaven. Oh, bad people can go to heaven, but not good people. There's really a simple reason why that's true. It's because there aren't any good people. You know, Ecclesiastes 7, Mark 10, uh, Luke 18, and Romans 3 all basically say the same thing. There is none good but God. There's no one on the earth that does right. It's basically saying, look, you may think you're good, but no, you're not. Romans 3.23, of course, says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, it's true that some of you might be better than, than some of us, and some of us might be better than some of you. The problem we have, if we employ that line of thought, is God doesn't judge on a curve doesn't compare us to one another. He compares us to himself. He's perfect. I don't know about you, but I, I don't do too well on that account. 
Well, people will say, okay, you're right, I'm not always good. So when I'm not good, I'm going to do some good works and make up for it. See, the idea is if I take my arms out and put them parallel to the ground and you load all of my good works in my left hand and all, hopefully just a few of my bad works in my right hand, the idea is as this balance tips and I end up with this, looks like a staircase almost, right? I can climb the stairway to heaven. And no, I'm not getting my theology from popular songs. But it doesn't work. You know, God, God actually uses what we would consider profane language to describe our attempts to use good works to gain access to heaven. Now, as we've often talked about, God likes good works. But if we misuse them and try to uh, get into heaven, it's, it's, an, it's an active insult to and against God. Because we're, we're showing despite, scorn for the way that he provided for us to get into heaven. But in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, not just good works, but your righteous works look like filthy rags. And the translators are being very um, polite when they use that term filthy rags. I, you can look it up if you want to figure out what it is, but it's, it's something nasty you wouldn't want to use to clean yourself up. God doesn't use shocking language just like the people in popular music today do. He's trying to get our attention. He wants us to understand where we really stand before him and how we can be justified. You know, you can't trade uh, good works or bad works down here, as we often say. If I'm doing 80 on the freeway and a higher patrolman pulls me over, he's just doing his job. I can tell him how the neighbor fell off his ladder painting his house and broke his leg and that I finished painting his house and that I've been mowing his lawn every week for the past six weeks. And I can tell him about the... Uh, the blind widow lady that lives next door and how I'm the handyman for her house. And he might be impressed, but he's still going to give me a ticket. He says, you know, you're a good citizen, but I'm not giving out those citations today. You broke the law and you're, you're held accountable. And, and that's just a realistic truth. I mean, that's, you can't trade it in a court of law down here and you can't do it with God. But this time people start to get desperate. They say, oh, I got the final answer. If it's not being good and not doing good works, there's just one leg of that triangle missing, and that's religion. I'll just throw some religion in there. And um, say, you know, if, if, you, if you follow a religion, God has to let you into heaven, right? No. If you examine the, you know, there's, some people say there's thousands of religions. Well, like Harry Ironside said, no, there's only two. There's a religion of the world that says you have to be good and do good works. Go and follow some of the tenets of our religion, and maybe God will let you into heaven. Or there's a religion. When I say this word religion, it's God's way of provision. It says you can't get, earn your way to heaven. You need a Savior. Well, you know, the people that employ all these methods I've been talking about, they may have the best intentions in the world. But God's given us the simple truth in the matter, and those who try to employ him will, be, will end up straight in hell. The way he's given us is so simple that we tend to reject it. I don't mean to imply that it's easy. It's not easy because we have to swallow our pride, and for many of us, that's quite a bellyful. Pride is what will keep us away from making the proper decision we need to make. What is it that separates us from God? We've mentioned it several times tonight already. It's the little word sin. You know, I'm always amazed at how people are offended by that word. You go into the grocery store today and you hear little kids using foul language that 20 years ago a grown man wouldn't use in public. I mean, I'm talking about a foul man would not use that kind of language in public. And parents are either, they think it's cute or they're proud of their children. But they're offended by the word sin. And maybe with good reason. You know why? 
That's a dangerous word. It carries a lot of conviction. You know, if I extend this, this arm and I make a fist, that meat hook there at the end, and I extend that index finger, that's a dangerous index finger, especially when I put that thumb up in the air. I could point this out at the audience, and you're a good-looking group, but I'd call you sinners. It's true. I'm making a true statement. But one of you astute brothers would say, hey, brother, look at your hand. You've got three fingers pointing at you. You're three times a sinner that we are. That's true, too, because sin is not a finger-pointing word. It's a universal problem. It's in all of us. Well, if that's our condition, what's the consequences? We've talked about that already also. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The evidence is all around us. The world is dying, the people in it. Ezekiel 18.4 said, all, God said, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father and the Son. The soul that sins, that soul is going to die. Nobody dies for each other's sin, just the one who dies. Hebrews 9.27, we're told, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. The word appointment is in there. God knows when it is. Most of the time, we don't. Let's go back to uh, Habakkuk. Um, I want to kind of flesh out what I started there. In chapter 1, God's responding to Habakkuk in verse 5, and he's saying, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Their justice and authority originate with themselves, it says a couple verses later. The Chaldeans were pretty wicked. They were very vicious against those who resisted them. Maybe not quite as bad as the Assyrians. And Habakkuk's upset. Chapter 1, verse 12, Habakkuk speaks out about it. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they. He couldn't understand why the wicked Chaldeans who were much worse than the Israelites were being used to punish. It didn't seem to fit. It didn't seem fair. God speaks to him. Talks about his judgment by the nations and then he speaks of his own judgment against the nations. Habakkuk comes to the realization that God is right. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Jump into verse 18. Habakkuk confesses, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. You know, we hear of an atrocity on television, for me especially if it's something against a child. The anger wells up. We want justice. We want to make sure. We want to see that perpetrator caught and brought to justice. And on an individual basis, we always want justice to fall upon those who have wronged us. How do you think God feels? Habakkuk thought God overreacted and that the punishment of the Chaldeans was too severe a punishment. But you know, because God is righteous and just, his punishment is always perfect. You think hell is too severe? 
and God doesn't. Again, the sins of man against God and against mankind require punishment. And when those who are guilty refuse the free gift of life from God, there's no alternative. They have earned their place of eternal suffering in hell. You know, as you read in the opening chapters of Romans, it speaks how uh, you know, the whole world is guilty. But God says, no man is with excuse. He says, all men are without excuse. God has graciously given to all mankind the opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. That anybody refuses it, it boggles the mind. You know, we're told that whosoever will may come. But the whosoever won'ts, they're going to suffer eternal, the eternal penalty as they have been forewarned. What's the difference between the whosoever wills and the whosoever wants? We can find that answer in Habakkuk also. The whole picture of the standing of every single man and woman on the face of this earth is found in that verse. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. It's pride, sinful pride is the difference. The pride poisons, pride paralyzes. Pride prevents. It prevents the whosoever wants from obtaining eternal life. They may even know the truth. They may believe in the resurrection. But the pride that wells up within them brings about their death. What must we we do to be forgiven, to have the penalty of sin removed from us? We'll believe in Jesus. It hardly seems to be a match since being good and doing good works and following a religious tradition doesn't work. You know, in John 1, 12, what's it say there? It says about Jesus, he came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. How could something so simple work? Well, you know, Yahushua in the Hebrew, uh, Jesus, it means God is my salvation. Again, like I said before, it's so simple we just kind of turn away from it. You know, a group of people uh, came to Jesus and asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He's speaking about himself. Just believe in me. You know, he'd already told them, uh, we can find it in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not come into judgment, but has already passed from death unto life. God's heart is he wants to save us. You know, in Ezekiel 33, he goes so far as to say, As surely as I live, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why will you die? Turn from your wicked ways and live. 2 Peter chapter 3, of course, he says, I desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Same God who says he desires that all men should be saved in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, rather. Romans 10, 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Only pride will prevent somebody from receiving eternal life. And friend, 
Are you that prideful person? Are you the one who's almost ready to trust Christ? But pride has stepped in the way. You know, all we have to do is admit to God we're sinners. You can't hide your sin. You know, God's in a perfect accountant. He never loses track of, of any sin. Remember every single one. And even if you think you haven't done that, many of them. James says you can keep the whole law but stumble at one tiny point. You're guilty of it all. You know, God also never forgives sin. No sin is ever forgiven. That may be a shocking statement to some of you, but it's true. He's not in the business of forgiving sin. Oh, fortunately, he does forgive sinners, but every single sin must be paid for. It's just a question of who's going to pay for it. You can pay for it yourself, and if you decide to do that, you'll unfortunately do it forever in a place you don't want to be. Why not let Jesus pay for it? That's God's plan. You know, we talked earlier how sin came into the world through Adam, and it seems unfair. I often point people to that and say, you know, God has made this statement. Look, you, you think it's unfair that you've been saddled with this nature of sin? How about we do an unfair trade, but it's fair to you. It's to your advantage. I'll take your sin and give it to my son, and I'll take his righteousness and give it to you. Of course, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 Speaking of Jesus, he who knew no sin was made to become our sin that we might become his righteousness in God. You know, God not only is a perfect accountant, he's also a perfectly honest accountant. If we let Jesus pay for our sin, it's paid and done for. God is not going to require or accept a second payment for any sin. That's another argument for eternal security. Now, I don't think anybody here was alive at the time of Christ, so all the sins you committed were in the future, and Christ paid for them all. God is not going to accept the second payment because that would make him unjust, and our God is just. You know, friends, you, you can't get a better deal than this. We do all the things that are wrong. We have sin that puts us in the ground and where we deserve to be, and we have a loving God who offers up his son. He says, I'll put him in the ground in your place. And then I'll raise him from the dead and defeat death and give you the opportunity for resurrection. That's what it tells us again in Romans 4.25. It's our sin that put him on the cross. And because of our justification, God raises him from the dead. By doing that, God can be, as it says in Romans 3.26, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The catch is, Jesus is the only substitute that God will accept. It's you or Jesus. It's Jesus or you when it comes time to pay for your sins. The question is, what will you do with this information? Someday you'll give an answer to God. Remember Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. How long do you have? Usually we don't know. Well, I want to finish with a final illustration, one I've kind of alluded to, and I sort of set the stage for it. But I want to talk about the parallels between skydiving and life. Now, I know skydiving tends to make people, talking about it even makes some people very nervous. I want, to, I want to assure you of something. There's a lot of misconceptions about skydiving. And I want to tell you that we have a perfect record in skydiving. 
Now, I, you guys think I'm... Uh, look, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm up here preaching the Word of God, right? I, I'm not going to lie. Our record is perfect. But, well, I guess it's always important to um, examine what's being measured, uh, to quantify what's being claimed. Our, our perfect record is this. We've never left a single skydiver up in the air. Every skydiver that has gotten out of the aircraft has made it back to Earth. Every single one of them. That record is perfect. Now, uh, uh, another misconception is this. You, you don't need a parachute to skydive. I know most people think you do, but you don't need a parachute to skydive. Now, it is a good idea to have one if you want to jump more than once. It, it could rightly be said that um, jumping out of an airplane is, a, is an act of suicide. It's suicide in the progress, and it is one that will be successful if you do not deploy a canopy before you're repatriated, before you meet the earth before that appointment with the earth is met. Um, you know, I've been using a little humor, obviously, in this, but those are all truths. Sometimes things go wrong when it's time to end a freefall, when it's time to deploy the canopy. Now, a canopy may partially open, and you might think, well, that's better than not having a parachute, and perhaps it is, but if there's something seriously wrong with that parachute, Landing with it is not going to be survivable. You know what some people do when that happens? They spend the rest of their lives trying to fix something that can't be fixed with tragic consequences. It's not just a fanciful story. This is becoming an alarming trend in the sport of skydiving. It's referred to as rigging in the air. Rigging is something you do in a parachute loft on the ground where you've got plenty of time to work on a canopy or the lines or the container that holds it, the harness that straps it to your body. It's not a sign of wisdom to do that in the air. This is happening to good skydivers. Good. They think they're good. And some of them are very highly experienced. They're doing really good work on that parachute as they're plummeting towards the ground at 120 miles an hour or perhaps faster. You'd say they have too much confidence. They've got too much pride to give up. And then their appointment with the earth is met and their life is over. I don't know how many times that's happened this year alone. In this last couple of years, it has become an alarming trend parallel towards life in eternal matters uh, to me is uh, it's like a neon light going off and on. You know, all they had to do was get rid of the parachute that couldn't save them and use the one parachute that could. All they had to do was pull a cutaway harness. The main parachute would have disappeared. A reserve static line would have automatically begun the sequence to open a reserve. Some people would have to pull two handles take them less than half a second, but they keep working and working and working and working on something that can't be fixed. You know, just like every skydive ends up back on earth, every human life will end up in eternity. Your existence forever is assured, but not where you spend it. That's your choice. Don't spend the rest of your life trying to fix something that can't be fixed.
don't ignore your pending date with eternity. Choose Christ. Choose life. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Heavenly Father, we, we give thanks for an opportunity to speak well of your Son, to speak well of you, to give praise and glory to you for the promise, the assured promise, which gives us peace, the assured promise of a resurrection to glory, to forever spending eternity in the presence of your glory. Father, we pray that for those who have heard this message, we pray that you would work on their heart and for some who know they need to make that decision would come to you and say, oh God, I'm the sinner that Christ came to die for. I deserve death and I deserve hell. But you said you love me and want me in heaven and I believe you. I believe you sent your son Jesus to pay for my sin by shedding his blood and that you raised him from the dead to show that you accepted that sacrifice and to give proof that death is not the victor. I want that, Father. Give it to me. Send your spirit to dwell in my heart and make me the person you would have me to be. Thank you for such a great salvation that you offer. Father, I pray that you would just touch the hearts of those who are considering eternity. Give them the courage, the boldness to speak up, to be a whosoever will, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and come before you now. Amen.